0: When you think of a Texan, you probably picture a cowboy, maybe even a kid riding to school on a horse. And while that's sometimes the case, it doesn't quite fit for everyone. Texans come in all shapes, sizes, ethnicities, and backgrounds. And that's why the Austin American Statesman is proud to present Truly Texan, a podcast showcasing all the different people that make the Lone Star State so unique. Today we're speaking with Monica Maldonado-Williams, who has done significant work in the Austin nonprofit sector and helped found The New Philanthropists, an organization that aims to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion on nonprofit boards. So without further ado, let's get into the interview.
1: So for our listeners, can you introduce who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Monica Maldonado Williams, and currently I'm employed at University Federal Credit Union. I'm the manager of Strategic Partnerships.
0: How long have you been in Austin? I've been in Austin since 1998.
1: I was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, and and then I attended Southwestern. And then after that, I moved up to Chicago for a couple of winters, which was way too cold for me. And then uh, New York City, uh, and I lived in Manhattan for about five years before moving back here to Austin. What brought you back to Austin? Uh, it's home. Texas is home. New York City was great. I had a wonderful experience there. I learned a lot. Um, but at the, in the end of the day, my family is really important to me and being close to them, uh, not too close in San Antonio, but close in Austin, um, that was important to me to come back to them.
0: Well, today I'd love to talk about the work that you've done here in Austin, like the New Philanthropists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, can you just tell me a bit about when you started kind of doing work with the community, getting involved, that just anything that falls under that umbrella? When did that start for you?
1: Getting involved in the community started for me around 2007. I was working as communications director at the Austin Bar Association. And working with a number of lawyers, especially young lawyers who wanted to get involved in the community. I was pretty young at the time myself, considering that um, most of the lawyers that worked there were later in their careers or that were members. So starting off and working alongside the young lawyers was really exciting. Um, When you are an ambitious person, um, it's important for you to have on your resume, not just your work, but that you do some community things. And lawyers are especially asked to do that. And they really um, wanted us at the, at the Bar Association to figure that out for them. So as communications director, I took on the task of how can I help some of these young lawyers get more involved in the community? I had been volunteering myself uh, off and on for years, finding some great experiences, some not. And so in researching it, Um, I decided to document it, and I started with a blog. This was 2007, and that's what people did, and so I just started keeping my notes there. I started attending events, um, meeting people in the community, um, interviewing people to get their insights about how to get more involved and how to get more involved in a more impactful way rather than just a short-term volunteering. Because it was a blog and because it was public, people started following it, which was a weird feeling, Um, And then I realized, uh, you know, I'm a content creator, I guess is the term now. I used to be a magazine editor in New York before I moved here. So it it occurred to me that putting this out in a periodical format might be great. And so we made a digital magazine out of it. Again, this was before anyone else had kind of an online news website Um, This is before Texas Tribune, kind of around the time Huffington Post was coming out. So um, it felt very easy to do. It definitely saved money. And it was, you know, me and some reporters and then a designer. And and it was fun. We had a lot of fun telling these stories um, on, on what we called Giving City Austin. So Giving City Austin at the time was a website. We did regular news stories. We had a newsletter. We ran a downloadable PDF magazine that we shot and photographed and laid out. We were just having a great time Um, and we had a lot of readership. We also started having events and what was so great about it was there were so many people who were like me at the time. They really wanted to learn how to get more involved and really wanted to have an impact but didn't know how and just needed some examples, needed some introductions to the world of nonprofits and to the philanthropic sector, which can have some barriers for people. So um, in doing that work, it kind of changed my life. Before that, like I said, I was a communications director, sometimes a B2B copywriter, all the things that us writers have to do (laughs) to make a living. And um, after that, I became more engaged in the community and uh, got offered jobs. I became the first communications director of the Austin Community Foundation. And that was a pivotal time because... um, the Austin Community Foundation asked me not only to come and be their first communications director, but also bring the magazine with me. They really liked what it was doing and liked how it was building this culture of philanthropic engagement in the community. So that was really exciting. You know, I went from doing something you know between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. on the side uh, in my living room with some friends to doing it in a 9-to-5 you know, way. And that was really exciting. It, it took a lot of burden off me because I had a job, and then I also had this side project, and I had two kids. So I was raising two little babies at the, at the same time. So the Austin Community Foundation opportunity um, was really, really important. You know, at ACF, it was so great. I had all of a sudden a much bigger audience of about 16,000 readers at the time. I had um, a print magazine then, and then I started – Having a regular segment on um, Good Day Austin, which is the morning show on Fox 7. I started doing that every other Monday, I would go on, or a representative from Giving City to talk about volunteer opportunities in the community. Um, And then from there, I kept having more events. Uh, Around 2015, 17, maybe, I believe we started, uh, uh, myself and a couple of other people in the community started uh, an event called The Art of the Gala. So when I was Writing for Giving City and being the editor, I would attend a lot of fundraising events. And some of them are better than others. Uh, and so what you would learn is that um, those that were better than others, there's, there's the best practices that can be had from hosting a fundraising event. And so um, we put on and developed a half-day conference about how to have a fundraising event. And that went really well. I did that for another uh, two or three years, and then I actually sold that to another uh, uh event company, Um, and then the pandemic hit, and uh, that was really hard. Um, uh, The pandemic hurt Giving City a lot. I was still working full-time, and in fact, I had this job I have now, but Giving City requires so much time and energy, and I was still doing it on the side at that point. I'd left ACF. And um, when the pandemic hit, so many people needed Giving City to be so much more than what I could give it. Um, I I was doing it on the side because while Giving City had always paid for itself, it didn't quite pay me. Uh, Like I said, I had two children, um, and it was was a lot of burden. So despite Giving City um, being successful at that point, not only did we have the website, the events, The column in The Statesman, I think I mentioned that. Um, We had a bi-weekly, no, I'm sorry, a weekly Sunday column in The Statesman for about three years. And then the Fox 7 segments, um, it was a lot. And it became more than I could manage and hold down a full-time job and have these children all at the same time. So I had to give up Giving City. But one of the other things that came out of Giving City was this organization called The New Philanthropist. And uh, what we discovered in covering nonprofits, um, you know, I talked earlier about the barriers to philanthropy, the barriers to community engagement. Um, Those were very real and they were similar to other barriers in society. Um, It really came down to access to people, access to resources and access to opportunities. And that disparity that exists in the community uh, exists across everything, and it comes along lines of usually income and race, ethnicity, skin color, and other kind of marginalized communities that we leave out. Um, And so a, a friend of mine, a partner of mine named Mando Rayo, he and I were talking about how can we solve this problem? And there was really nothing out there addressing this problem. We kind of honed in on Nonprofit leadership. And the reason we did that is because both of us had worked at nonprofits. Uh, He and I had both had the same experience in seeing that the people who were creating the solutions for the clients that they served did not look like the clients that they served, nor did they have the same lived experience as the clients that they served. And you could see instances of where this disparity was causing missteps at that nonprofit. And so we truly believed, and still believe, that um, the people who are living that experience have a have a role to play in the solutions. Um, nothing about us without us, right? And so we started uh, campaigning for an organization called the New Philanthropists, which is pretty hard to do. It involved um, uh, we called it our listening session. It involved meeting with some local leaders in the community, funders, people who do leadership development, um, people who kind of are the gatekeepers of the nonprofit sector here in Austin. And um, asking them, getting their support around how we might accomplish this with with new philanthropists. Um, I will say that not all of the leaders we spoke to were supportive. Some of them tried to talk us out of it. Some of them were downright saying to us, don't do this. No one wants you to do this. Do you really believe there are people of color who want to serve on boards, who can afford to serve on boards? Um, it, was, it was, you know, every other meeting was wonderful. And then there was a meeting where we would just walk out completely heartbroken, you know, and discouraged. So it took a lot to get the new philanthropist to where it was, where it is. Again, the goal of new philanthropist was not to completely change the sector. It's more to make sure that at the leadership level, and I'm specifically speaking about the board, the volunteer board, that there were people who understood the issues uh, that the nonprofit was trying to address and that they could play a role in solving those issues. So as we develop New Philanthropists, we develop the programs, we also develop the funds for it and fundraise, and um, it's been pretty successful. I think that was about five years ago now that we started it, and I'm I'm pretty proud of it. You mentioned
0: that you've seen some organizations take some missteps because they didn't have people of color on their boards. Can you give some examples of those missteps?
1: Well, back in the day, uh, I'm not sure how it's changed now, but for example, There are, as we all know, a number of children in foster care who need homes, and uh, they need uh, foster parents to care for them, to keep them out of the children's homes or the offices or wherever we're putting these poor young people these days. Um, In the past, there's an organization here whose job it was to recruit foster parents. When you recruit them, you also have to train them, and there's a lot of materials in training them. For a long time, Austin was the only region. Uh, the region for recruiting and training foster parents is di- divided in Texas d- based on geography. And for a long time, Austin was the only region that did not offer these recruiting and training materials in Spanish. And so while we were seeing a number of children in protective services who primarily spoke Spanish and came from Hispanic Cultures and communities and homes, we were not seeing parents from the same communities and homes who, who could take them in. And that, I didn't realize the language barrier was a problem at first, and I, it didn't sit with me. I'm Hispanic. And I thought, gosh, I know I come from Hispanic culture. We would love to take in other children, and that's how we are anyway. We help each other raise each other's children. So what is the deal? So as I investigated a little bit more, I found out that that um, we weren't doing the materials and the training in Spanish. So I spoke to the one organization who's primarily responsible for that um, with this as a premise. Um, why aren't you offering this in Spanish to, for a story for the statesman, actually? And um they had no explanation they just didn't realize that that would be a barrier and um i mean i asked them like well you you need to offer it in multiple multiple languages there's other families and other cultures who would happily take and care for these children while they're in foster care you just need to reach out to them and and they just didn't realize it and i you know i looked at the leadership looked at the board looked at who's who's who leading that effort in Austin across all organizations. And it was primarily English speaking white people who just didn't realize that it's not a Google translate document when you're training people to care for children in foster care. It it's, it's a whole different culture. It's a whole different uh, language of course. And, and you reach out to them in different ways. They're not going to be listening and reading the same things as the white community does. And um, the good news is, as a result of some of that work and that investigation, we do now have people who are reaching out to the Spanish-speaking community. And surprise, surprise, they're happy happy to learn and and train and become foster parents. But that is like one of the more especially egregious examples that we come across when we see people in power not representative of the people they're serving. There was an organization that serves meals to seniors and um, they did not serve, I'm still not sure they do, vegetarian meals. And so when you consider uh, the, the, the confluence of our rising senior population in Central Texas and our rising Asian population in Central Texas, the Asian seniors tend to want more vegetarian meals versus the chicken fried And the enchiladas, you know, which I love, but you know, everyone's different. And so when I asked this organization, why aren't you serving more vegetarian meals? They said, well, we asked the population that we currently serve what they would like to eat. And they ranked vegetarian as the lowest. So we can't afford to serve everything. So we don't serve vegetarian meals. I'm like, well, are you serving the population in need or are you just serving the people that you're serving? I mean, like, you're just kind of speaking to the choir kind of thing and um, and I think they just realized you know we, we are meeting the people that we serve but there's a growing population of homebound uh, seniors uh, who would prefer a vegetarian meal and we're just we're just not reaching those and like I said I that was another story I wrote I I hope and I believe at this point that they might have addressed that issue but um, but again it's it, it was A mostly white leadership, definitely not an Asian leadership, no Asian representation at that organization at that time. Who could speak to that? Who could speak up for people and other cultures that they represented?
0: To speak in super blunt terms with what you've seen of people taking missteps, of people in those meetings straight up telling you that people of color don't want to be in board positions or can't afford it, would you say that the issue among board leadership, the barriers that you see, is it mostly due to racism, to just Ignorance to, like, what kind of factors come into play of like why are these barriers happening?
1: It's a bunch. It's a mix. It's all of the above. You know, there are people that are just unaware. A lot of folks who wind up on a board lead with their heart. You know, you're required to give a gift. Not all of them do, but but most most nonprofit boards required you to give a gift, a substantial one, a thousand, fifteen hundred, twenty five hundred dollars, sometimes ten thousand dollars. So they are there to serve. Many of them don't realize mm, they're blind they have blinders on. They're not seeing they they, they, realize, they think they're coming in with their heart and that's true but they have blinders on to pockets of the community that they don't experience. Austin is so s- separated not just by um, you know wealth and income but geographically. In Austin, there's no reason you could, many people go the whole day of weeks and months without seeing poverty, without seeing people uh, in need. And so there's a belief that, well, we're doing great in Austin, everything's fine, and I'm here with my friends and we're all representing this nonprofit and we all care about this mission very much. Also the way boards are recruited. Board recruitment tends to happen with the five of us, or let's say 10 or 12 of us sitting at a table and board recruitment happens, who do we know? So it's, the recruitment process itself can be very mm, incestuous. It's, very, uh, it's, it's who we already know, who's already in our circles. There is a gift requirement. And um, it's not that most nonprofits rely on that income from that gift, but it's expected. And so right away when they start thinking of who do we know, sometimes they think, who do we know who has money? That recruitment process they currently have with every thought they have, it narrows it down to just their rich friends tend to go to their same church or live in their same neighborhood or our kids go to the same private school. And, and that's how they find themselves in those situations. And some of them it is just, you know, racism. They have no, they really believe that um, people of color in this community don't understand how things work, couldn't possibly process this. At work, for many of them, they have never worked alongside a peer who was a person of color. And we, we, we actually suss all this out. We have this, a New Philanthropist has this whole program that meets with boards, puts them through a series of questions. They answer individually and then responds to each of them individually, gives them kind of their score. It's not necessarily a score, but it's kind of a score. And then gives them a score as a group. And it allows them to reflect and think, oh, gosh, I didn't realize I thought that way. Or in some cases, especially early on, when they did that self-examination, um, many of them realized it was time for them to leave the board and they left. Sometimes it was even just the idea that they were going to have to go through this process. It prompted them to roll off the board or, or you know, give their notice. Um, and so... We find it's it's a lot of different reasons. I will say most of the time, because board recruitment is who you know, it just perpetuates itself.
0: With that in mind, you mentioned, I mean, giving the scores, but how else does the new philanthropist mm-hmm. work to put people of color on boards? And have you had some success stories of someone who's currently serving on like an organization board from your group? Oh,
1: yes. Um, we have... Um, probably about 90 uh, nonprofits that we've helped in the past. I think we've placed, placed, I don't know, about 50 people onto boards, but we're always working, it's on some level with a nonprofit. So the different programs include that one I talked about, This we called it, I think they call it the first look, where we ask a little self-assessment of the boards. Depending on how they score, again, I'm doing quote marks that can't be seen, but um, it, it kind of, Creates a prescription for them of training, and so that training can be anything from cultural competency training to um, like a courageous conversations training. Um, basically, training them on how to be more inclusive. If you because what happens is if we do place someone on their board, we won't we don't want that person to be tokenized. We want them to be an active, supported, you know, participant in the decision making on that board. So that's with the organization. We also do it with the individuals. We truly believe that the individuals who are capable of contributing at that level already exist. We just think they're not given that opportunity. So the placement is one thing, but also because they may or may not be the the one person representing an entire ethnicity. there's, it's a special place that they may have on the board, and so we we uh, train them and prepare them for how to respond to those situations, how to stay in their power, um, how to represent um, uh, an entire ethnicity if the case comes up, and then just in general leadership and board service and, and what that means.
0: Obviously, as you've said, your organization has done a lot of amazing work with nonprofits getting people of color in board positions, but what's next? What still needs to be done? What are the issues that y'all are currently mm-hmm. facing and striving
1: to make progress in? So I will say um, I'm, very, I'm very pleased with the success of New Philanthropists. Um, I am a fan and donor at this point. Um, it's in the very good hands of one of the original co-founders and an executive director now, as well as its own board, and contract workers. So they're doing phenomenal work. Um, you know, I will say, um, not only have we placed people on boards, but we've actually placed a couple people on city council. I think Pflugerville's first female uh, black city council person went through our program and, um, and, and credits us for a lot of that courage and understanding of how to serve in that role. So I think that. You know, that being said, I think the idea of developing leaders of color is still very much what New Philanthropist does. Um, You know, we've done it with nonprofit boards, but I know we've also provided that training to large organizations, working with companies like Indeed and Google, who've invited us to come do training for some of their leaders and their employee resource groups and things like that. The great news is that this training... While we developed it for nonprofit boards, it's transferable to any form of leadership or any leadership group tasked with leading a group that they may not completely understand or they don't have the lived experience to understand. So um, I think a lot of organizations take advantage of that training now. And and I can see also growth for the new philanthropists in other cities. And in fact, um, we, uh, we are providing some of this work in Houston right now at the time. So it's really, it really is a unique offering, and I'm very proud of it. You know, Houston, a lot of cities have the same problem, you know, this this gap between the, the people in power and leadership and the people who are having the solutions prescribed for them. Um, so it's, it's, like I said, something that can be transferred to a number of cities across the country.
0: Speaking of looking across the country, I'm not sure how much you've looked into this issue in other states, but do you think the issue is... Bigger in Texas of not having people of color on boards just because of
1: our history and unfortunately not. It's across the country. Um, there's an organization called Board Source that does st- studies on boards and representation. And uh, a few years ago, their study revealed that 90% of board members are white. And when you consider that. There's probably 90% of the people they serve are not white. You can see the huge gap. So it's something that the sector across the country realizes is important. And in fact, I think the New Philanthropist has received some national press about um, the work that we're doing to that regard. And I think that's how a lot of leads happen across the country. But, um, you know, it's one thing to have um, this service and these trainings But people have to have the humility to ask for them and to pay for them. Um, We we do not provide these services for free. A nonprofit hires the new philanthropist to do this work for them. And that means it comes out of a budget. And that means the board has to approve that expense. So that step of a board approving an expense to do a self-assessment is rare, <laughs> so you know it. It we really appreciate that the, those that do, and we appreciate the foundations and funders who provide us money to do that for others who don't pay for it. So, um, the the funding model for what we call capacity building organizations in the sector is complicated and hard to overcome. But those, I think uh, we believe that more nonprofits, since we started New Philanthropists, are willing to make the expense, go through that journey, and change and grow to serve their clients better.
0: Since the New Philanthropists, they're in other hands now, good hands, as you said. What does your current work look like?
1: Oh, my current work, I get to work at a credit union. So I would have never imagined myself working at a bank. Um, but but credit unions are different. You know, we are member-owned, not-for-profit cooperatives. Uh, we have almost 400,000 members. Most of them live here in Central Texas, and that's a really important responsibility. They give us their money. We they, You know, we help them accomplish the things they want to accomplish in their lives. And we're really proud of our unique role in the community. What I get to do as um, the manager of strategic partnerships is identify ways that we can um, exponentially improve our impact. So, wonderful people at the credit union who do it day to day in the branches and collections and member services and all the departments, mortgage, lending, credit cards, all that stuff. I get to extend our mission out into the community. So, I work with nonprofits, leverage the trust they have with their clients to get them into better financial situations. And so, for example, there are a number of nonprofits that serve people who are very ambitious. They may be working two or three jobs. They might be a, a woman-led uh, household. And she is also trying to get a degree and get out of poverty, get out of benefits, and onto a, a healthier financial path. But when she does get off of benefits and starts making um, an income closer to the, the current MFI, median family income, she finds that um, she's... She's in a whole new environment financially, doesn't know, may not know how to bank, may not have a bank account, may be doing everything through Chime or PayPal or Venmo or debit cards and things like that. So um, we work with nonprofits to help their clients get into better financial situations, not just through our products and services, but through financial education and really the relationships. Every, like I said, every day, our, our the people in our branches are really wonderful. They're basically like banking social workers, um, helping people overcome, you know, let's say that they get a car loan uh, for a car from an unscrupulous car dealer, and the, it's like a 28% interest rate or 48% interest rate. We help get them out of those situations. Um, they might be in over their head in credit or debt. And so we do a lot of credit building and a lot of education and savings accounts and and just try to get them into a better situation. You know, finance finances are so tied to your stress levels and your health and everything you want to accomplish in life. And so we find that our, um, our employees are really great about understanding that, understanding how complicated it can be, and being good ambassadors to, for financial health to the community. So I get to do that in the community and the nonprofit sector and then also just kind of be the UFCU ambassador. As we come to the end
0: of the interview here, there's a question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast as a tie-in to the name, and that is, to you, what does it mean to be Texan?
1: I mean, I I love Texas, born and raised, always very proud wherever I lived, Chicago or New York, to tell people that I was a Texan. Um, that is not always the case now. Um, I grew up in a Texas that was progressive, that uh, appreciated uh diversity. Um, I grew up with Ann Richards and Henry Cisneros as my mayor and just seeing our leadership um, reflect the people and and the wishes of the people. And um, I still believe in that. I still work for that in everything that I do, either at work or in the community, because I feel like that's when we were at our best, thriving and welcoming to everyone, not just a certain few. So I kind of hold that belief strong in my heart for Texas and and continue to work for it every day. And where can people find you? Do you have social media, website? Mm, Well, I'd love for you to find the New Philanthropists. Uh, That's on Facebook. That's on Instagram, LinkedIn, of course, probably some of the others. Since I don't have to do social media anymore, I don't do as much social media anymore. Um, you know, it's it's kind of tough. New Philanthropist is probably the one you should find online and Facebook and LinkedIn. We'd love to see you and get your support.
0: Well, thank you so very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to tell your story on Truly Texan, head over to the Austin American Statesman website and fill out our submission form. This podcast is hosted and edited by me, Hannah Ortega. You can find me on Instagram at Hannah Ortega ATX. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left.